0: Last week, as we kicked off this uh, Building Lives Capital campaign, we started in Nehemiah chapter 1, and we saw Nehemiah have a moment. Uh, He had this moment where his brother has returned from a trip, Nehemiah is serving as the cupbearer to the king of the Persian Empire. And his brother comes back from their homeland of Judah, where he's been to the city of Jerusalem and has discovered the walls of the city are torn down. As we talked about last week, this would be embarrassing for a people group. It would mean the people would be exposed to to enemies and, and wolves and whatever. But also, it was considered embarrassing. Like, their God must be really weak and pathetic. And so Hanani, the brother, tells Nehemiah, this news, and in that moment, Nehemiah senses he's supposed to go back to Jerusalem and help resurrect the walls of Jerusalem. In September of 2008, I had a Nehemiah moment. I had a moment where I sensed God saying, I want to use you to plant a church. Now that moment happened September of 2008, And yet, I did not step off staff at the church I was at until October of 2010. So, two years went by. Two years of me wrestling, praying, crying, questioning, doubting. But mostly, it was two years of waiting. You ever realize just how difficult waiting is? It's awkward, it's painful. It's slow. Whether you're waiting at the DMV, waiting to get married, waiting for supper, or just waiting for the website to load. Did you know humans now supposedly have a lower like, attention span than goldfish? Goldfish, are at nine seconds. We're at eight. If the website isn't loaded within eight seconds. We're done. We're out. We're gone. Because it's painful to wait. When we're waiting... It feels like we're wasting. We're wasting time. We're wasting away. We're wasting something profitable. It feels like we're even wasting our purpose. This is why we pull out our phones. We flip on the TV. We do anything we can to distract ourselves from the awkwardness of the wait. But today what we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 2 is that the wait can actually be profitable. It can be a time of planning, a time of preparation. It does not have to be nothing. It can be a very incredibly important something. And I want to show it to you in Nehemiah 2. So if you have a Bible with you, please open it up to Nehemiah chapter 2. If you are a first-time guest and didn't bring a Bible with you, don't worry about it. We're going to put the scripture up on the screen. Uh, But if you have a Bible on your phone, totally feel free to pull that out and use your digital Bible. Same for those of you who are online. You have an extra benefit. If uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can click over on the Bible tab and then navigate to the book of Nehemiah. If you don't know where Nehemiah is, there's a little cheat sheet up on the screen. You should be able to use that and help navigate to this... Old Testament book in Nehemiah. Uh, We kicked this series off, as I said, last week. We are in the midst of a building campaign. We are looking to purchase this building. We're going to talk about that just a little bit today, and we're using the truths from Nehemiah to help us understand how God might be working in our midst. So as we get ready to jump into Nehemiah chapter 2, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've already prayed that you would help us cling to you to hold on to you. And I pray you'd help us to do that right now. That as we work through these scriptures, that you would teach us, and that these words would be like a balm to our soul. That they would help us, in no matter what we are facing and fighting, some of us find ourselves waiting for a new job, a a relationship, waiting for something to change. Some of us are just waiting for something to actually happen in life. And so God, I pray that today you would speak. You would speak powerfully and mightily, Because God, these are your people. And so this today isn't about what I want to say. It's about what you need to say. Because God, each person here that's tuned in is at a different place spiritually. And so God, I pray that you would do what only you can do. That you take the the words of this one man and you would spread it, multiply it, and help it hit just where it needs to. But God, my prayer is that when people leave or log off, that they'd remember what Aaron Bird said that what they'd remember is what you, their Heavenly Father, who loves them enough to have sent Jesus for them, what you had to say. So God, open our hearts and minds now to what you've already said through Nehemiah and what you need to say through your Holy Spirit to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, join me at Nehemiah 2. We're going to read the first eight verses. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, When wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah." And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, when we read a story like this, we see that last sentence, and we think, oh, what a nice happy ending. Nehemiah made these requests, and the king gave them to him. God surely is at work. But if that's all you see, what you miss is the painful weight. Now, I did not notice the weight my first time really studying the book of Nehemiah years ago. The, the weight that he had to go through is hidden just a little bit. So, so let me bring it out for you. Last week, when we were in chapter 1, we saw in verse 1 that it was the month of Kislev. I am not an expert in the Hebrew calendar, so I had to go and look this up myself, but Kislev is the ninth month on the Hebrew calendar, but for us, we would call it about the 11th, 12th month, because it was about mid-November to mid-December. However, today, when we opened up in chapter 2, verse 1, we saw it was the month of Nisan. That is the Hebrew first month of the year, but for us, it's basically mid-March to mid-April, around the third, fourth month. But if you total that up, you realize that four months have passed. From November to March, four months of sitting in this knowledge that the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down. Four months of heartache and pain, depression, wondering, crying, praying. Four months of waiting. As I said in the beginning, waiting is hard. It's awkward. It's painful. Sometimes it feels meaningless. But to be a faithful pastor, I need to let you know, this is how God works. If you study through the scriptures, you will discover that God has taken a number of what we would call the saints through these difficult periods of waiting. For instance, back in the book of Genesis, a guy by the name of Joseph He had to wait through slavery and prison before he became the leader God had told him he would become. Or in the book of Exodus, look at Moses. Moses knew he was a Jew raised by the Pharaoh's daughter, wondering if he might one day lead the Jewish people, the Israelites, and yet he goes into a wilderness where he waits 40 years before God sends him back to free the people from slavery. Or or take King David, Israel's greatest king. He had to wait 15 years from the time Samuel anointed him as the next king to when he actually assumed the throne. Over and over and over in the scriptures, we see God take people through a period of waiting. Because God does something in those winters, in that dark night of the soul, in this awkward, painful time. Somehow God is getting your roots deeper so he could then do something greater. As I've often said at Riverwood, God wants to do something great through you, but before he does, he's going to do something great in you. And sometimes he chooses to use a period of waiting to do that deep work. That is what he's been doing in Nehemiah. Through those four months of waiting, God's preparing him. But there's been also something else going on. Notice that Nehemiah points out that he has never been sad in the presence of the king. I mean, this is the king of Persia, the king of the greatest empire at the moment. He has a front row seat to this greatness. You don't walk in acting all bummed in front of such a powerful man. Now, it isn't that he was trying to trick the king, to lie to him. I think he just didn't want his own personal pain to keep him from doing his job well. And so he sought to serve the king with joy, with integrity, but the heartache obviously became too much because it somehow leaked out through his face. Now, as I've been studying this this week, I found myself becoming more and more impressed with King Artaxerxes, right? We, we, as we study the scriptures, we tend to look at the heroes of the faith. Artaxerxes would not have been a fearer of the one true God, and yet... As I read and study him, I'm like, this, this guy's pretty impressive. Because you see, in, to be in such a position of power would often make you very narcissistic. Like, people are there to serve you. And so, if he sees Nehemiah sad, he may just say, smile, stop it, you're in the presence of the king, or just give me my wine. But instead, he stops, and he's aware enough that something's going on with Nehemiah, and so he asks him, says, you're not sick. So this must be sadness of the heart. Well, did you notice the very next phrase? It says that Nehemiah becomes very afraid. Because if Nehemiah opens up and says, well, yeah, I'm sad because my people, the Jewish people, have a city, Jerusalem, its walls are torn down and it's rather embarrassing. The king could look at him and say, well, well wait a second. You care more about Jerusalem than Persia? You're like the right-hand man of the king, and you're worried about your people? No, you're our people now. I clearly can no longer trust you to bring the wine to me. You may try to poison me, knock me off so that you can like go back. Nope, that's it. You're fired, and you know what? While I'm at it, I'm going to behead you. This is risky. But if you remember last week at the end of chapter one, as Nehemiah is praying, he prayed, Father, Heavenly Father, give me favor with this man. Meaning, with the king. And now suddenly the king is noticing him. The king is aware he's sad. So maybe, just maybe, this is God creating the opening. And so he takes the risk. He shares, here's why I'm sad. Now I want you to notice the king's response. Verse 4. Nehemiah has just said, here's why I'm sad. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? Notice, he didn't say, oh, that's too bad. I could see why you'd be sad about that. He didn't look at him and say, well, you know, it's just the way it's going to be because we're Persian, we're mighty, we're going to keep those walls down. No, he senses something's going on in Nehemiah. This is why I'm so impressed with Artaxerxes. Not only is he aware enough to realize he's sad, now as Nehemiah has spoken, he's aware there's more to this than just sadness. And he says, what are you requesting? But notice what Nehemiah does first. He doesn't roll out a list of requests. Instead, I prayed to the God of heaven. Like He takes just a moment to pray. This is like a one-second prayer. This is a whisper prayer. But if you're a follower of Jesus, this is a brilliant move. Like, right before you go and take a test, or right before you have to walk into the boss's office, right before you sit down with someone, or maybe as you're sitting down with someone, and suddenly they start pouring forth this story and you have no idea how to respond, just say a whisper prayer. Now, whisper prayers are not, like, all you should do. I mean, by all means, we're, you know, we're, we'll pray together on Sundays, pray before a meal, pray before or after you read your Bible, you know, pray as, as you know, people send you prayer requests over text, like We should be people of prayer but it's okay to make those one second whisper prayers. God, help me. God, give me peace. God, give me wisdom. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down one-on-one with someone to do counseling and as they start opening up I find myself just praying, God, give me wisdom. Last thing I want to do is to say something or or to not be aware that could end up hurting them more. And so I just make a little whisper prayer. And I've been amazed at how many times God answers that prayer. Nehemiah wisely stops for the briefest of moments and says this whisper prayer. God, help me. Give me favor with this man. Then he begins to roll out his plan. In verse 5, we see him request first to be sent, right? So that's his first request. He says, send me to Judah. Then down in verse 7, we see him say, send me with letters. And he actually asks for two different types of letters. In verse 7, he says, send me with letters, basically giving me safe passage, right? So that no one would say, whoa, 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 wait a second. What do you got, where do you guys think you're going? Who gives you the right to traipse through our, our territory? Well, the king does, all right? So he's asking for a letter, giving them permission to, to go, But then he also asked for a letter in verse 8 that they would go to Asaph, the keeper of the forest. By the way, Asaph is another Hebrew name, meaning this is probably a fellow Jew. Another Jew who's in a key position of leadership within the Persian Empire. And he's saying, give me some of the slumber. In in other words, Nehemiah realizes he's going to need the king's authority to go permission to go. He's going to need the king's protection so that no one ambushes him. He's going to need the king's resources. Basically, he's really dependent upon this guy. And so he asks for his help. But now what I want to point out is that I do not believe that Nehemiah thought of this spur of the moment. I, I, I don't think that when the king says, well, what are you requesting, that he started going, uh, well, you know, How about some lumber? Yeah, that that sounds good. And oh, you know, I I probably need to say pass it. Like, I don't think he's winging it. The fact that he seems to just be able to say it tells me he has been using the period of waiting to plan. As God has put this burden, this call, this vision on his life to go to Jerusalem, to resurrect the walls, he starts realizing, but wait a second, how are we going to do it? Well, we're going to need some stone. We're going to need some lumber. I'm going to need people. Oh, I'm going to need permission. Well, I guess I'm also going to need protection. Like, he's putting together his list. He's putting together his plan. In other words, he did not just wait. He entered into a time of active waiting. Shortly after I had the sense that I was supposed to plant a church, part of the, the call was to go to Kansas City and work with a particular church to learn about church planting. So about a month after I had this call, we traveled down to Kansas City for a weekend. We met the church that I felt I was supposed to work with, had a great weekend, and Leanne and I are just like ready to go. Let's do this. And instead, we talked to the pastor of that church, and he's like, nah, you guys need to wait because you don't know where you're going. You you don't know exactly how this would look like. You you have a lot of things that you need to figure out, so you need to wait until these things are, are solved. That was so painful. It was so difficult. We felt like God said, go, so we want to go. And now suddenly we're hearing, well, actually, before you go, you you need to do a little bit more of waiting. So we took his advice and made it a time of active waiting. I read all sorts of books about church planning, Found podcasts that talked about it. I I tried to interview different church planters, trying to wrap my head around this, because I still had doubts about my capabilities of doing this. And so I needed some things figured out. I needed some clarity. We made it a season of active waiting. And that's why then, two years later, we sensed it's time. And when we pulled the trigger and we went, we had a plan in place for how we were going to move forward. May not have been the best plan in the world, but it was way better than if we had tried to do it two years prior. When you find yourself in a season of waiting... Don't just sit around twiddling your thumbs. Don't try to numb the pain of the wait by binging Netflix. Enter into active waiting. Seek after God. Now, last week in my growth group, one person admitted, well, Aaron, I, I don't have like that burden that you did or like Nehemiah did. I don't have that call. Wish I did, but I don't. Well, if that's you, guess what? Then you're waiting for the call. You're you're waiting for, for God to say, here's what I want you to do. And you know what you do? You actively wait. You get into the scriptures. You start serving in ministry. You start just being faithful to love others around you and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as you enter into that and give all of yourself to him, he's preparing you for if and when he decides to say, now I want you to do this. So in a sense, all of us, are in a waiting period. And in the midst of our waiting, let us actively pursue God. Because it's in the wait, he does something deep within us, and the plans begin to come together and make sense. To help show you that God really seems to value this idea of planning, I want you to skip down to verse 11. Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, and what I want you to do is see what he does once he arrives. So Nehemiah 2, verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my, what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And what I want you to notice is that when Nehemiah comes waltzing into Jerusalem, he does not make a big show. He does not stand up in the middle of the city, call all the people, and say, I'm here as your savior. The king has sent me. We're going to resurrect these walls. I think if he had done that, people would be like, first of all, okay, wait a second, who are you? Oh, oh, cupbearer to the king. And that means what? And then second of all, um, dude, you're coming from like the capital, you, you have no idea how difficult life is here. You, have you really looked at the walls? And they'd scoff and throw them off. Well, we're not listening to you. Instead, Nehemiah comes in and spends three days. Just lives there. Begins to kind of experience life. And then one night, he goes out and he travels around. The city, looking at the gate, seeing just how bad it is. Some of it was so torn down, his horse could not even get through. Now he's got an accurate assessment. Once he's lived there and experienced it, once he's seen it for himself, he begins to put together a plan, and now it's time to draw the people together. Pick it up there in verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the word that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. If you are in any sort of leader position, leadership position, maybe at work, uh, maybe you know, here at Riverwood in ministry, maybe you know part of some organization in the community. If you're a leader of any sort, pay attention to Nehemiah. This guy is such a good leader. What he does right here is absolutely brilliant. First, by having lived there for just those three days and then traveling around the city, looking at the gates, taking it all in, he's then able to stand before them and say, I get it. I see it. Because he says, you see the trouble we're in. Right? So he's identifying with them emotionally, saying, I understand. He even takes it a step further. He doesn't just say, so I have come with the authority of the king. He uses we language. He says, so let us come together and build these walls. But then by saying he's, it's time... Yeah, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. By standing before the people, saying, I understand, I'm in this with you, he's also communicating, I have a plan. All right, He, he, he could say, that. look, I brought the lumber with me. Look, I've been around. I've seen the parts of the, the gate, I mean, of the, the walls that are going to take more work, other parts that are in a little better shape. Like, we've put together a plan, but it's going to take all of us. Now, next week, we're going to be spending some time looking at what it's going to take for this capital campaign to happen and how it's going to take all of us. But what I want you to see this week is how God leads Nehemiah to this place where he's saying, hey, I understand the situation we're in. Here it is. But we've put together a plan and together we can do this. Now, as I admitted last week, a lot of churches have used the book of Nehemiah when they're doing a capital campaign. I don't want you to think that we're therefore trying to twist it because I think what some churches inadvertently do at this point is they say, so therefore, we have traveled the night, we've assessed our situation, and we're in this with you, so here's our plan. Now, I I don't think that's bad to do. In fact, it's probably wise to do. I I think God values wise planning. And so a a church that really puts together wise planning submits to God, I, I think there's wisdom in that. But what I want you to see is that we're not doing this simply because we feel like this is a template. We're doing this because this is how we feel God has led us. And so I'm wanting to let you know that we have, behind the scenes, been at work, and we've been trying to put together a plan. That's why this week we put inside your handouts the uh, uh, brochure, the the guided FAQ brochure. Some of you may have picked one of those up last week. If so, feel free to drop it back on the uh, table. I'm going to encourage you, though, you might take that with you. excuse me, and, and maybe give it to someone. There, you may have a family member, a friend who would be absolutely excited and passionate about what God is doing at Riverwood and what we're seeking to accomplish. They might want to be a part of this. Also, we have a link. It was in the uh, news and notes email. But if you go to weareriverwood.org slash, and help me out, Manette, is it building dash lives? Okay, so weareriverwood.org slash building-lives, you can find all that same information in the guided FAQ on our website, and you could send someone that link. But we're not trying to just share this out with, with everyone in the world, trying to just nickel and dime people to, to support this. We, we want Riverwood to support this. We just don't want to keep anyone who would be super excited to be a part of it. But what that webpage, as well as the, the brochure, doesn't capture is that we've been putting these plans together for over three years three years ago we were meeting at the fairgrounds many of you were a part of our church at that time you remember what the days were like Uh, I remember uh, meeting a church planner who was they had converted um, an auto parts shop into their church and he was telling me how you know he was really looking forward to the day that they could rip up the old tile and they could do like this really cool stained concrete thing and I said hey we're meeting at the fairgrounds and we've got stained concrete too it's just stained with radiator fluid, with oil, with coffee. Like, it was, it, the place was a mess. We did the best we absolutely could with it. But there came a day and an age where we realized this is not a long-term solution. First, the fair was going to be moving. We were outgrowing it. And we just knew there's something else. And so as I shared last week, we had looked all around at a number of options. And this was by far the best place. What I didn't tell you last week is that three years ago when we looked at this building, it was actually for sale. And, to be just completely honest, the price was actually good. Waverly's notorious for having a slightly higher real estate prices than than the surrounding region. And this building was actually priced very, very competitively. It It was a really good price. But as we began thinking through, okay, we purchase it. Could we get a loan? We thought maybe we could, but then we knew we also needed to remodel it. And then we also knew there were some things that needed some repair as we started calculating it all up, we started realizing, I don't know that we could take on that much debt. And and it just does not seem wise to dump that much debt onto our church family. And so as we prayed it through, we thought, you know what? We gotta say no to this. Even though it's the best thing we've seen, even though the pricing's actually good, long-term, this just doesn't seem wise. And so we said no. No. And that's why it was not a surprise, two, three weeks later, we found out another group swept in and purchased the building. Again, great price, and there it was. And we thought, all right, that means God didn't have that building for us. But what we didn't expect was for them to use the same realtor we had been using, and that realtor to tell them, you know, there was a church that was really, really interested in this building. And so for the new owners to approach us and say, would you have interest in leasing it? And at first thought, it's like, well, no, no. Like We couldn't afford to buy it. How are we going to afford to like take on a lease? But then we started thinking it through, and we're like, well, we could ask for this, and this, and this, and this, and what would it hurt? So we're like, well, yeah, we'd, we'd be interested, but instead of a typical five-year lease, we, we'd only want to sign a three-year lease. And at the end of that three-year lease, we'd like the option to either sign another three-year lease, or if we're ready to purchase it, would that interest you? And it shocked us when they said, yeah, we could do that. And so things began to move forward. Well, now we find ourselves, three years later, as we're looking at, you know, into this last year of the lease, wondering, is it time? Should we sign another three-year lease, or should we purchase? As we crunch the numbers, it seems to be wise to purchase it. You can see those details in that brochure and on the website. But you, you see that we've tried to put together a plan it's, we've submitted it to God, we've submitted it to our Riverwood partners, but it just seems that it is time for us to make this step of faith and to do this. And we're not doing this because God laid out the template in Nehemiah. Instead, we read Nehemiah and we see what God did in Nehemiah's life, what God has put into the scriptures, and we now see he's doing something similar in us. So that's why next week we're going to be talking about what part can you play in this. Because as we're going to see in chapter 3, it's going to take everybody to do this. But before we end, I just felt a burden to share one more thing with you. You see, I think the reason that God embeds this truth, this idea of wise planning into the story and life of Nehemiah it's because God Himself values wise planning and he reveals it through the life and story of Jesus. This whole idea, I, I believe, is embedded into the gospel, which is the, the foundation of who we are as a church. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, the Apostle Paul wrote this: that God chose us in him, meaning in Christ. So God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, may, maybe you're just hearing a Bible verse being read. So, so take a moment and look at that again. Zion, can you put that up on the screen, or did I, did I forget it? All right, we're going to read it anyway. Verse 4. Even at, uh, sorry, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before God created oceans and land and light, He chose you. If you are in Christ, if you have understood this gospel story, if you have put your faith into the whole story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, then God chose you before the foundation of Of the world. It was part of his plan. When God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit said together, Let us make man in our image, even as they made that decision, they knew that mankind would sin, that Adam and Eve would rebel. And they knew that the natural consequence of such a spiritual travesty was death. And yet, God said, I'll take the penalty for them. God the Son willingly came to this earth to take on what we should have paid. He did it through the cross, but then to show he has authority over all things, he rose again from the dead, which we just celebrated at Easter two weeks ago. This is the gospel. At the very heart of the gospel is the realization, the reveal that God had a plan. And that plan included you. That's why Paul, as he says in verse seven, "In him," meaning in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness, riches of His grace. We have redemption. We, in other words, we've been redeemed, we've been purchased. Sin tried to take us away. But it was God's plan to redeem us. We have redemption through what? Through Christ's blood shed on the cross. And by him giving his life, his blood being shed, it says we have forgiveness of our trespasses, forgiveness of our sin. And what does this come from? The riches of his grace. This was God's plan to make you his. And I don't know about you, But if God planned for me to be his, it leads me want to worship, it leads me want to celebrate, it leads me want to connect. So let's do that right now. Let's worship God through song. Let's worship him through communion. Let's worship him in prayer. If you find yourself right now in a season of waiting, may you just submit that wait to him and ask him to help you make the most of this period. If you find yourself waiting just to get out of the wait, ask him to help you. Let's take this time to come to the one who put together a plan to make you his. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that God loves you. Jesus willingly came to this earth for you. He wants to make you his. And so there's nothing better that you could do right now than to take this next moment and allow it to become a holy moment. That just as Nehemiah had this sense of God saying, I'm calling you to rebuild the walls. And just as I had a sense of God saying, I'm calling you to plant a church. Right now, God might be saying to you, I'm calling you to become mine. When many people realize the truth of the gospel, they realize there is a God, that his son, Jesus, did come to earth, live a sinless life, but went and died in the sinner's place. And yet he rose again from the dead when they realize the truth of the story and they they go to put their faith in it, they typically find themselves wanting to confess their sin, admitting that they fall short of God's glorious standard. And yet they put their faith in him because as they confess that, they say, God, I accept your forgiveness as we just heard from Ephesians 1. God forgives you of your sin. Jesus took it all. So accept that forgiveness. So may today be your moment. May it be today be the day you enter into God's plan. But for those of you who are waiting, you know God. You know he loves you, he's made you his, and yet you just still find yourself waiting for the pain to end. You find yourself waiting for the relationship to be fixed. Or you find yourself waiting to get into a relationship. You find yourself waiting for that kid. You find yourself waiting for that different job find yourself waiting for things to improve. May you enter into an active time of waiting. And as you enter into that active time, may you realize you're not alone. Not only do you have a church family with you, but Jesus is with you, and you're his. So may you come to these elements, remembering Jesus gave his body for you. May you take that cup and remember, that is his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And as you take that, saying, Jesus, your story is my story. And so I can wait as long as you want me to. As I wait, and you do a deep work in me to prepare me for the great work you're going to do through me. So Heavenly Father, may this next holy moment be yours. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just uh, enter into this place to touch the hearts and minds of all who are present, that those who are online would just have a sense that you are with them, even if they're in their living room or they're in their car or wherever, that that, that no matter where we are at, you are always with us and you're in the midst of our waiting. So God, I pray you'd help us right now to remember, to cling to you, that these elements would be reminders that you, Jesus, gave yourself for us and so we can trust you, we can follow you, We can wait. So God, would you minister to hearts right now? Would you bring some healing? Would you bring some uh, comfort? Would you bring some peace as we offer up our whisper prayers, as we cry out, as we cling to you? God, we need you. Help us to put all of our faith in you, to let you be the foundation of who we are, that this gospel message Be what we are all about. That we are redeemed, we are forgiven, and we have been chosen by you before the foundation of the world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. At any time during the song, feel free to make your way to the communion elements. Uh, If you feel that you're just doing this out of duty, then I'm going to invite you to not go. Instead, just sing, stay where you're at, and pray. If you need to stand, do so. If you need to kneel, you may. This time is for you to spend with God and to let him do in you what he needs to and wants to do. Because as we say, he wants to do a great work in you so he can do a great work through you. So Let us do this now in remembrance of him.